If you want to open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, today we will be continuing in our series that we've just called David. All right, David. We wanted to take a few weeks and look at the character and life of King David and then apply it to our own lives. All right, the first week we traced what is kind of the main theme of the book of Samuel. Like, well, what is going on in this? The book of Samuel is what tells uh, David's life and kind of the beginning of Israel having a king. Uh, and, and really what the book of Samuel talks about is this idea traces the whole thing. It is pride and humility. And the proud will be brought low and the humble will be brought up. All right, that, that is the theme of this book. We will see that again today as we go through things. Uh, last week, Pastor Gabrielle from our Sox Center location, she was over here and she talked through the story of David and Bathsheba. All right, one of the more famous ones of David's life. You have David and Goliath, David and Bathsheba, and these amazing moments and really quite crummy moments in his life. And now today, what I want to do in this last week is I want to look at what happens to David following Bathsheba. Like, what, what does the rest of this kind of look like? And in order to do that, we actually have to look at part of the story from last week because something that happened in the story last week sets everything up for today. All right, now, parental warning. If I, I think all the kids left. I was going to say, if there's any kids in here, the story can get dicey at different times, and, but I think everyone has left, all right? So, uh, as we do this, I, I want us just to be ready for God to speak to us this morning. I want us to approach this with a mindset that uh, you are here for a reason, right? I, I'm here for a reason this morning. God has a purpose for us this morning. He wants to speak to each and every one of us. Our job is to be open to what is God speaking to me and then to take action on what it is that he is saying. All right, being a follower of Jesus means that we are constantly trying to be more like him. We are trying to act more like him, love more like him, and ultimately reflect his character and his love more and more each day. All right, so that's what this time is. This is not a, oh, let's just sit and listen to a good lesson. This is like, all right, I'm ready for God to speak to me, and I want to be challenged, and I want this week to be different because of it. So let's be eager for that. All right, so you can stand with me across this place if you are willing and able. Uh, We have Nathan, who is speaking to King David here in this passage. Uh, This is him confronting David about sleeping with Bathsheba and murdering her husband Uriah. 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 9. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. God, we pray that you would just illuminate new things this morning for us, and that, Lord, that we would be changed by this time that we spend just reflecting on your word and listening to your voice. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. So our scripture that we just read is the foundation for the entire story that we're going to look at today. All right, early on in David's life, we see this humble young man with a radical trust in Yahweh. All right, Yahweh is, is God's name. If you didn't know that, God actually has a name, and it's, it's not God, it's, it's Yahweh. And, and David has this radical trust 
in Yahweh, and he's, a, he's an amazing example of what it means to follow God and trust in his timing. Uh, and as time goes on and he becomes king, we have this story of Bathsheba that I think really kind of taints our view of David. Well, actually what it does is it brings us back to reality, and reality is that David is a human, and David makes mistakes, all right, just like anybody else. And, and he has free will, and with that free will, like all humans, at times, he will choose to make incredibly selfish decisions that will hurt those around him. And today, we look at what happens following this big mistake. How does he respond? How does he live his life? How does he lead the nation of Israel? And there's a bit of a doozy of a story that unfolds here, all right? And this is like, this is Hollywood worthy, right? Like Hollywood keeps kind of grabbing on to different like things. Like there's that movie that came out about Noah that was really weird and all these things. I'm like, this, this is a story here that has everything that you would expect in some crazy thing. It has revenge, violence, scheming, backstabbing, double agents, plot twists you wouldn't see coming, like all these things. You're like, wow, this is, this is crazy as you read through it. But everything is set up by this verse that we just read. And God is telling David that because of his failures, failures that happened in private for the most part, there are going to be consequences that will play out very publicly in your own family. Alright, so before we even jump into where we're going, I want to give us one of our main points for today. Usually this would be something we'd kind of cover at the end, but I think this is important for us to know and understand as we read this. So here's our first one. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot this down. The consequences of your failures will affect more than just you. Alright, the consequences of your failures, of your mistakes, of your sin, will affect more than just you. And this idea is the backdrop, the foundation of today's passage. So we open up after Bathsheba's story. We read about some of David's kids. And based on what Nathan had just said, when we see David's kids, we would expect that there's going to be a little bit of drama. All right, so we have uh, David. All right, and he's going to be one of the main people that we're looking at today. And we have three of his children. We have Amnon, who is David's oldest son. Tamar, his daughter. And Absalom, who is another son. And Tamar and Absalom, they are brother and sister. Amnon is a half-brother. All right, David had a lot of wives. He made a lot of mistakes. All right, so he's, he, he, just, he loved a lot of wives, a lot of concubines. We're going to see that in this story. And so we have a, a half-brother here. And Amnon was desperately in love with Tamar. All right, his half-sister. Okay, remember, again... Incest was not the same thing it was then as it is today. It's kind of weird for us to read that. Well, Amnon ends up tricking Tamar to come to him. He pretends to be sick, and then he rapes her. Following this, this love and obsession that he has for Tamar actually turns into disgust. Like, he hates her, and he sends her away. All right, and it is... It's this terrible thing. She's begging him, pleading with him, like, please don't send me away. At least marry me. Like, what you've done is awful, but what you're doing now is even worse. Like, no one will ever marry me. Like, culturally, what was happening second here is, is worse than what's happening first. All right, and it's this terrible, tragic event. Uh, and it's important for us to understand this. There's a difference between consequences of sin and punishment for sin. All right, what we're seeing today is kind of consequences for sin. Punishment might be where God is actually punishing someone for sin that's happened. God is not orchestrating the rape of Tamar here because of what David did. These are consequences of that sin, 
When you live a certain way, your kids see that, they watch that, they emulate that. That is what's happening here. God is not orchestrating rape. Tamar is a victim. All right, Amnon is following in the footsteps of his father. Now, so this happens, and Absalom, Tamar's brother, finds out and has Tamar come live with him. He takes her in, and that's basically sort of the end of Tamar in this story. We really don't hear about her again. But Absalom, he hates Amnon for this, and this hatred just stews and grows. King David finds out about this, what happened, and King David is angry, but he doesn't do anything about it. Like, he doesn't do anything about this. And what some commentators say about that is that he was basically paralyzed to make a decision about Amnon because he had just basically got done doing the same thing. So how is he supposed to turn around and discipline his kid for raping someone when he had just done the same with Bathsheba? And he's in this moment of kind of paralyzed because of this and, and doesn't do anything about it. Two years pass by, and Absalom has been plotting his revenge. Two years of, of scheming how he can get back at Amnon. He throws a party, Amnon ends up coming, and Absalom has him killed at the party. All right, he waited two years and he planned his revenge out. Uh, so very quickly here, we need to understand this. We have, we have David's life and these sins, these sexual and violent sins that happened with the murder of Uriah and Bathsheba. And now we're having the same thing play out in his kids right away. All right? And, and, and David is dealing with sexual sin and murder in his own family now. Absalom now goes into hiding for three years. David wants him back, but is conflicted because he killed his other son, right? The firstborn, who was supposed to be the next king as firstborn child. And if he brings him back, he probably has to punish him in some type of way. And because of this, David it basically loses two of his kids right here. And Tamar, who has gone basically into seclusion, three of his kids are like gone. This, this is a tragic spot. Now, during these three years, Absalom leaves, and he has a chance to put everything to rest. Right? Like, he was upset with Amnon because of what he did to Tamar. Well, he takes revenge which isn't a great way of doing this, but he takes revenge, he gets revenge, Amnon is killed. At this point, Absalom has the opportunity to walk away, try and find healing, but instead, he has this contempt for his father that just grows and grows while he's away. All right, he never dealt with the deeper issue, and he let it just grow inside of him. So after three years of being away, Absalom is permitted to come back, but David says, he cannot be in my presence. I don't want to see him. All right. Now, after two years of Absalom being back, can't be in David's presence, finally they are reconciled. Joab, one of David's generals, is like, you need to figure this out. And he does this whole little plot thing to get him to forgive Absalom. And he reconciles them. Now, Absalom thinks that he could do a better job than his father at being king. And this has been stewing inside of him. And it, Essentially what he ends up doing is he starts to secretly take on different roles and duties that the king should have. Alright? He rides around town like he's a king. He gets this big chariot and like 50 bodyguards and rides around town. That's how the king would go through the city. And then he actually starts to talk to people like he's the king. And he begins to judge legal matters for the citizens of Jerusalem as if he's the king. 
These are all the king's jobs, and, and Absalom just starts to do these kind of behind David's back. All right? And so all of this has been 11 years when we look at this. He does this for four years where he pretends to be the king, takes a lot of David's jobs. So we have 11 years of Absalom from the, from the rape of Tamar to all of this, that this has been in David's family. It's just a mess. All right? And, and 11 years of constant strife. And in these four years where Absalom is pretending to be king, he wins people over. And people begin to like him. And they begin to think, well, maybe he could be a better king. And actually, some people are, are almost tricked into kind of thinking that he is king. Like, he's doing all the king's jobs, so he, maybe he's king. And Absalom asks David if he can go to a town called Hebron to offer a sacrifice. He tells David that he's made a promise to God that he would do this. All right, so in this moment, Absalom lies to his father and actually takes the Lord's name in vain in the process of doing this. Absalom takes people with him, about 200 of his loyal followers. They go to Hebron, and he sends out all these messengers around Israel saying, I have been crowned king. And this message is coming from a city, Hebron, that David was actually crowned king in as well. So it would make sense when these messengers come and they have news from Hebron that Absalom has been anointed king, all of this would make sense. And he basically tries to take the, the kingdom away from David here. David hears about this and he decides his best course of action is actually to run. To leave Jerusalem and hide. And this sounds kind of bad, but, but he does it for a very, actually, good reason. He says, people are going to die. If Absalom comes back, there's going to be war. And the citizens, Jerusalem, is going to pay the price for this. People are going to die. So he said, it's better that I just leave. And some of David's most loyal followers go with him. And there's this moment in the midst of this that happens that really speaks to David's character. Right? Like this whole story, we aren't really sure where David is. He seems to be beating himself up about his mistakes. Uh, he's kind of wallowing in self-pity. Doesn't really seem to be doing his job, actually. If David were doing his job, Absalom would not be able to step in and take some of these responsibilities away from him. So David is kind of absent in this. We don't really know what's going on. And we get some insight into his heart, though, in this moment. And David and some of his loyal followers are walking out of Jerusalem. And this is in 2 Samuel 15, verse 24. It says this, Zadok and all the Levites also came along, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until everyone had passed out of the city. All right, so understand this. David has the Ark of the Covenant with him. This represents the presence of Yahweh. And when God was with them, they would win. We talked about this back in the first week. All right, so I guarantee some of David's followers that are with him, they are excited to see that the Ark of the Covenant is going with them because it is a political and military weapon for them. All right, they could defeat Absalom if they had this. That, that would be the thought that everyone has. As long as we have the Ark, we're good. We're going to win this. The problem was Israel had started to assume that God was always with them, no matter what they did. Just because they had this Ark of the Covenant with them, they would be like, God's with us. He's for us. We're going to win. In our first week, we saw Israel do this, and they actually lost the battle because they had put more trust in the actual Ark of the Covenant than in the presence of God. They had taken pride in that, and pride leads to a downfall. 
All right, so how will David respond in a similar situation? Continuing on, verse 25, it says, Then the king, this is David, instructed Zadok to take the ark of God back into the city. If the Lord sees fit, David said, he will bring me back to see the ark and the tabernacle again. But if he is through with me, let him do what seems best to him. This is an amazing moment in David's character that we see. David isn't doing what his family's doing. All right, he's not scheming of how can he win and take the throne back. He isn't thinking through, how do I get back to the palace and in my rightful place? He is wholly submitted to God's will. David sends the ark back. He would rather be in right standing with Yahweh than in possession of some artifact that might give him a political or military advantage. In the midst of David's family being a mess and backstabbing each other, literally, as his family is rebelling and disloyal to each other, David is loyal to God. To the point where there's a family member of Saul, you keep reading on, a family member of Saul comes out, he sees David and his men walking away, leaving the city, and this guy begins to just walk on basically like the hills next to him, throwing rocks at them and insulting them, saying, this is what you get, David. Because you went against Saul, now your kingdom's getting ripped away. And it's funny, this is happening, this guy's yelling, throwing rocks at them. And one of David's men asks him, he says, can I go over and cut his head off? Like he literally says that, can I go cut his head off? This is not the guy you send in to de-escalate a situation. All right. He's like, hey, how dare he do this? You're the king. And, and David responds and, and says... What if God sent him to do that? What if God's anointing has left me? What if I'm no longer God's chosen one? Like David is so humble in this moment. He was the same way to Saul. God's anointing had left Saul, and yet David, he didn't know that the anointing had left, and he honored Saul no matter what. And now he's basically taking the other side of it, saying, what if God's anointing left me? How, how am I to know that this guy isn't told by God to come out here and curse me and throw rocks at me? David is so committed and submitted to God and his will. He's realizing that after all his mistakes, that he needs to go back to the way he was as a young man with this radical trust in God that he once had. And this story goes into this whole crazy setup for a final clash between David and Absalom. All right, and you have David sending people that are loyal to David back to Absalom to mix him up and give him bad advice. And basically these double agents that are kind of, you don't even know who they're working for really until the end of the story because everyone is just kind of disloyal to each other. Absalom ends up going up on the roof of the palace, sleeping with all of David's concubines that were still at the palace in plain view of all of Israel. And again, you see this parallel between David's sin and the consequences that are playing out in his family. And it builds up to this final battle that will happen. And, and prior to the battle, David tells everyone to please deal gently with Absalom. Right? Like this, this little punk that has made his life difficult, beyond difficult, for the last 11 years. What David says is, is please, please be gentle with him. They go into battle. David's troops are actually doing way better than Absalom's, even though they were outnumbered. Absalom flees, and in an ironic, ironic event, his hair gets caught in a tree, and his mule runs away, and he's left hanging. All right, now, remember the theme of the book is that proud will be brought low, humble will be brought up, 
something earlier in the story. It talks about how Absalom was like the most handsome guy in all of Israel. And one of the things that he loved the most was his hair. He had this super long, beautiful hair, and he had so much pride in that. It says that it actually weighed like five pounds, something like that, like just this thick, big head of hair. And you have this moment where he's trying to escape, and his pride, his source of pride, his hair, is actually his downfall that gets caught in a tree, and he is left hanging. Moral of the story is, guys, don't be too sad when you go bald. Like, it, it might be God's will for your life, all right? David's men find Absalom. They want to deal gently with him. And Joab comes up, and he's like, nope, I'm sick of this kid. Walks up and stabs three different daggers into his heart as he's hanging there. He might have had some unresolved issues. Joab was the one that convinced David to allow Absalom back in, and he's like, I let you back in, and now you're doing this to me? No. He goes up, stabs him, his armor bearers kill him, and Absalom is dead. David hears the news, and he just weeps. He's devastated about his, his kid dying. And obviously, the story keeps going on. I want to stop it there with Absalom's death. All right, and, and this is a crazy story with all sorts of things going on. And, and quite honestly, it's not really a fun story. So what are we supposed to make of all of this? Well, we have to go back to the first thing we said, which is this. The consequences of your failures will affect more than just you. All right, this entire mess of a story, these 12 years or so that are just ugly, are a result of David's sin. David's daughter was raped. David's son was murdered. David's kingdom was taken away. His son was banished. She spent years without seeing him. And ultimately, his son was killed. And in the future, you actually have more of this happening in David's family. Like this one sin results in all of this mess. We do not live in a vacuum. Our lives impact other people. And that is how God intended it. That's how we are meant to live. He obviously wanted it for good. But that's up to us. All right? Like our lives are meant to be lived in community. That's how God created us. God wanted to be in community with us. He wanted us to be in community with each other. And that's great when people make good decisions. And it positively impacts the community. But when people make bad decisions... Right? Like we love the idea of individualism and freedom, but we are meant to live as a community and we are meant to have responsibility to each other. Every parent understands this. When you have kids, you give up certain freedoms, certain rights, certain whatever for your child because you love them. This is the same idea that God had for us. But unfortunately, when we make bad decisions... It has the same impact on the community as when we make good ones, just in, in verse. The community suffers. David's individual sin grew to impact not just him, but his family and eventually the entire nation of Israel. The second thing for us this morning that we can pull out of this mess of a story, and I'm going to use a phrase that another pastor says because he says it in a way that I, I can't, word it better, all right? But it's this. Your life is always moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. Your life is always moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. Every one of these catastrophic tragedies could have been changed in a moment if someone would have just changed where their mind was heading. 
All right, when David saw Bathsheba from the roof and he saw her bathing, in that moment, he could have said no, turned around, walked away, and none of this story would happen. But he dwelled on that thought. He dwelled on what he wanted. He dwelled on this selfishness and eventually invited her to come, which when the king invites you, that's not a choice. He commanded her to come and took her. Amnon continued to dwell on his lustful thoughts of Tamar. He could have dismissed those thoughts and said, nope, this isn't the way this should happen. Maybe I can ask for her hand in marriage. But instead he dwelled on those thoughts and it led to the eventual rape. David could have dwelt with Amnon swiftly after the rape of Tamar. But he was dwelling on his past and the mistakes he had made. And that was clouding his judgment and he felt that he couldn't punish him. Even though he absolutely can. Every one of these mistakes, each one of these people, they could have changed their thinking and the story ends right there. Absalom could have focused on caring and providing for Tamar instead of harboring bitterness and hatred, letting it grow for two years and then murdering Amnon. Absalom could have, could have been done after that and yet he allowed this bitterness towards his father to grow. This whole thing. Joab could have dealt gently with Absalom and probably found forgiveness but I'm pretty sure he let that annoyance and bitterness and anger grow in him over those years. This story is filled with violence and revenge, but it's, it's deeper than that. It's people allowing their thoughts and their anger and hatred and bitterness uh, of unfairness, all of this welling up inside of them. That's what this story is. Time doesn't heal all wounds. Let me tell you that. Time does not fix Poison in a heart. There are times that you have to deal with things. There are times that you have to let go of things. Because you hanging on to them is going to continue to move your life in that direction. Because you will not let go of something. You have to trust that God in his time will bring justice and that that justice may not be exactly how you want it to be. We have to reach that place that David was at where he is wholly submitted to God and God's timing and his ways. All right, we cannot assume that we are always right and God is on our side because maybe we actually had a part to play in the situation that we're in. Sometimes that's how this goes. So this is what I want for us today. Carrie, you can come as we wrap up. I want us first to reach this place where we don't just realize that our decisions affect others, but that we begin to actually take that into account when we live our life. Right? Like it's one thing to say, I understand that, that is true. It's another thing to say, I am going to live my life based off of that. I think most of us would say, yes, I understand that. My decisions impact the people around me. And yet when it comes to making a decision, do we stop and actually think like, how is this going to impact those around me? People I love most. People I don't love. Let's be honest. In, in, a, in a church, in a body of Christ, you're not going to get along with everybody. That's fine. You don't have to be best friends with everybody there. But there, there's something about being in the body of Christ where we, we have this responsibility to each other. When we make decisions, when we respond to someone or a situation, 
when our emotions are getting the best of us, when we have some type of temptation that's sitting in front of us, how we handle the next few moments, the decisions that we make and our responses will affect those around us. And this is a mindset shift that has to happen, all right? And it, it takes time. When someone gets married, there is a new mindset that comes with that. It doesn't happen overnight. You have to make that decision. But if you continue to live as an individual when you are married, it will not work. And it takes time for you to think of the other person. There actually was a study on this, and it said that for the average couple, it takes nine years of them trying to think of the other person first before they actually begin to put the other person first. Nine years. And the average time that most people give up is eight. And they keep reliving the worst years over and over. Nine years. It is a process to stop and think, how does this impact other people? Not just me. We have to start that process. Secondly, we need to not allow certain thoughts to consume us. Some of us here today have been dwelling on things in our lives for far too long. You have allowed a past hurt to consume you. You have a past failure that haunts you. You have an anxiety or worry about the future that you cannot shake. You are so scared that a certain outcome will happen that it dominates your mind. And if these thoughts consume you, if these things are always popping into your head and you are allowing them to stay there and even grow, you will never be able to heal. Your life will move in the direction of those thoughts. This isn't some self-help, like I need to think positive thoughts. This is, this is going to God trusting that he has what's best for you and allowing him to work in you and heal you in those areas. All right, this is not just like, think happy thoughts. This is a spiritual thing. This is going to God. This is surrendering to him. And it's not easy. This isn't just like, oh, hey, stop worrying about that. Give it to God. All right, that, that oversimplifies some of our issues sometimes. But if you continue to dwell on those things, it will ruin your life. Can we just stand across this place as we do that? Let's just close your eyes, make a space right now where you are, just saying, God, I want to focus on you. And I want to give you a chance to respond to God right now, this morning. Maybe as I talk about the idea of, of impacting those around you, you feel like, you know what, I have kind of been living in a selfish way. And you've just focused on how your decisions impact you. And you look out for number one and try and get further along in life. And you want to change. You want to say, I, I can't keep living this way. I want to focus on others. I want to live in, in a way that positively impacts everybody else, that grows them spiritually, that allows God to work in my life and their life. If that's you saying, I want to I stop living in a selfish way and begin to focus on what God has and how my life impacts others. If that's you, would you just slip a hand up this morning? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. A lot of us. A lot of us. 
And our prayer is that we start that process this morning. You can't beat yourself up this week when you make a choice that's selfish. You learn from it. You say, all right, next time let's not do that. Maybe you're here this morning and and when I talk about the idea um, of your thought life, that this resonated with you. And you are here and you need to begin to be able to take captive your thoughts. That you have some past hurt. You have something from from your past that is following you, that is still plaguing you, that, that is controlling your life and you can't move past it, but you want to. Or there's other things that you just can't stop focusing on. And you want God to begin to enter into your life to to help you with these thoughts, to to heal your mind and to move beyond some of this baggage and this hurt and to heal you. If that's you, I want you to slip a hand up this morning. Yeah, 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 yeah. God, I pray right now for every single person in this room. God, for those that want to live in a way that reflects how you intended us to live. God, that we aren't living selfishly, but that we have responsibilities to those around us, that we want to live in a way that will help them grow closer to you. God, I pray that you would help us in this process, move us along further. That every single day we wake up and we're just a little bit less selfish. And God, I pray for those that their thought life is just destroying them. God, that they have specific instances or or things from their past, things that they are worried about in the future, God, that that just consume their mind. God, that they wake up and they're thinking about it. They go to bed, they're thinking about it, that nonstop these things are happening. God, I pray that you would just heal their mind, God, that you you would move into their life in a way, God, that you would replace those thoughts with trust in you, with a relationship in you, with with just healing. The last thing before we go, really the last thing to pull out of this scripture from today, we're supposed to be looking at really the best king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, someone who is amazing. And we look at this story and you're left with just him and you're left with brokenness and hurt and violence and rape and all sorts of things. And this is supposed to be the best. And we look at this and we say, well, what are we supposed to do? If he can't do it, what are we supposed to do? And that was actually the the point of this story. That when people would read it, they would say, what can we do? If David can't do it, how are we supposed to do it? And the answer was, you can't. You can't do it. I can't do it. None of us can do it. No king can come and do this. The point of this is that we needed a Messiah. We needed a Savior. We needed someone to rescue us. We needed someone to do what we could not do. And everything points forward to Jesus. And the Jesus that came and rescued the nation of Israel and was there for them is there for us. The answer to their problem is the answer to our problem. And I want to give you an opportunity. If you're here this morning and you feel like, I I have never given my life, I've never surrendered my life, I've never been fully committed to Jesus in the way that you are talking about here, 
and you want to make that decision this morning, I want to give you that chance. So if that's you and you say, I'm done living this life for myself. I want to live for him. I need someone to rescue me, to save me because I can't do it on my own. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Let's do this, church, just as a, as a declaration for all of us that this is how we want to live. I'm going to say this. I want you just to kind of repeat with me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for taking away all my mistakes. I want to surrender my life to you. And help me to follow you the rest of my life. Amen. Amen. Can we celebrate that? That is the best decision we can make. If you want to spend more time praying, anything like that, if you feel like, you know what, God, I need to go after you, and I, I need to right now begin to change some of these ways in my life. If that's you, you feel free to hang out in here. Uh, otherwise, we do have the mission trip meeting in the conference room. So you guys are dismissed. Thanks for being here.